things seem to have been quiet from the Vatican for the past little while. We've been wondering what's going on. And uh, since the last word we heard was the kind of dismantling of the traditional Latin mass with uh, the implementation of Traditiones Custodes uh, of Pope Francis, something has been going on in the background. It's the Synod on Synodality. All the bishops of the world are getting messages from the faithful and forwarding them to Rome. What is this? What does it portend for the church? We're going to find out today from Matt Gaspers, who's with us. He is the managing editor over at Catholic Family News, a great publication. Go check it out from the late John Venari, a friend of LifeSite and very holy fellow, but we'll get into that more. Um, You're going to want to stay tuned to find out what's up in Rome. Matt Gaspers, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for inviting me, John Henry. It's a pleasure. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. So, uh, Matt, you're one of the very few people who probably have uh, read the whole of the uh, documents that led up to this Synod on Synodality. First of all, can you tell us what this is and what it's all about? Sure, uh, to the best of my ability, because uh, as as Cardinal Dolan famously said on the weekend that the Synod opened around the world, October 17th, you know, he asked rhetorically, just what is synodality? I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's play that clip. Just get that. Now, you ask, just what is synodality, of which St. Fran- Pope Francis so often speaks? I don't know if I completely understand it, everybody. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's humorous, but it's also really sad and pathetic. I mean, when, when the Cardinal Archbishop of New York is saying, I don't really know what it is, everybody, and neither does Pope Francis. Um, okay, so <laughs> what are we supposed to do with this? <laughs> but as I understand it, you know, based on the literature that's been published by the Vatican, it's pushing the notion of that uh, Pope Francis has repeated on numerous occasions, he, I think it was from a 2018 speech that he gave, I forget the exact um, context, but he, his claim is that God expects the church to be synodal in the third millennium. That's paraphrasing the quote, and it's quoted in the official literature. I don't know how he claims to know that infallibly, uh, if he received some sort of private revelation that the rest of us are not privy to. But he says that God expects this of the church in the third millennium. So synodality is simply, you know, synodus or synod. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I do know that the word means basically walking together. And that's what, hence the uh, the logo, the official logo, uh, you've probably seen it. It looks like it's a crayon drawing by a, an elementary school student, which certainly doesn't lend much um, uh dignity or or uh, sacredness to this event uh, that they want us to take so seriously um so basically it's consulting as i can as i understand it it's a consultation a general consultation of the entire people of god you know the, the popular vatican II phrase to the end of of listening to what the holy ghost the holy spirit has to say this is a direct quote from 
the uh, official handbook in, in Latin. It's called the Vademecum. And this is in uh, section 4.1 of that document, which is a summary of what is envisaged in the diocesan phase. That's the other uh, novelty about this particular synod is that it's divided up into various phases. It's actually a two-year process. So we're going to be covering this for the long haul, unfortunately. But this is the quote from the handbook regarding the purpose of the synod. It says, quote, the heart of the synodal experience is listening to God through listening to one another, inspired by the word of God. We listen to each other in order to better hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking in our world today, end quote. So my issue with that is, you know, my understanding is that the Holy Ghost speaks to us through public revelation, through scripture, through tr tradition, and through the voice of the magisterium, not by listening to my neighbor in the pew who probably doesn't even know the catechism, <laughs> if you know what I know what I mean. So I don't understand what they're hoping to get from this consultation synodal process other than a mishmash of confusion and heresy and lots of other bad fruit, uh, to, to be frank. Well, there's some really interesting aspects to what's going on. This is coming from Pope Francis, all about listening. The same Pope Francis that refused to listen to the Dubia Cardinals who begged and begged and waited for years until death uh, to answer simple questions with regard to the clarity of faith, which he is charged as the Pope to answer, to clarify. That's his whole mission. And yet he didn't do that. So something's amiss right from the start about wanting to listen when he didn't want to listen. In fact, he completely rejected it. In fact, the wanting to listen aspect is also funny because there is an almost complete rejection of traditional Catholics when it comes to listening on the part of all those rah-rahing for this uh, synodal approach. In fact, if you look at uh, what's going on in Germany, and, and I'd like you to speak to this because Germany has already been going through a synodal process. Uh, we know that because we remember, uh, horrifically so, that Cardinal Marx, who is the head of the church in Germany, uh, and a cardinal chosen by Francis to sit on his special council, but uh, talked openly about the synodal process in Germany going forward, even with things like the blessing of homosexual couples, which has no place in the church whatsoever. So um, address that, if you would. What's going on in Germany, and how does that reflect upon uh, what we are to experience with the synod of synodality? The pretext for the German synodal way, or sometimes it's called the German synodal path, which started in, I believe it was February or March of 2019, immediately following the big summit in Rome regarding the plague of clerical sexual abuse. And that was the pretext for holding this you know, German synodal path to discuss stuff that has nothing to do with that plague, uh, by the way, uh, but to really open a Pandora's box of all different kinds of things that are, as you mentioned, are not negotiable, not up for discussion. Um, so interestingly, in the handbook uh, for the uh, Synod on Synodality, which the formal title is, I think, um, for a synodal church, uh, communion, participation, mission, something like that. So in the, op in the introductory section, it says, um, 
many regions, I'm quoting now, many regions already have established processes for engaging with the faithful at the level of their parishes, movements, and dioceses. We are conscious that there are a number of countries where the local church has initiated a synodal conversation of its own, including, and then it lists a few examples, the Ecclesial Assembly in Latin America and the Caribbean, and it has a link to that, the Plenary Council in Australia, it has a link to that, and the synodal journeys in, you guessed it, Germany, linked to their website, and Ireland. So just this very subtle passing reference, oh, by the way, this is already going on in Germany, here's a link to it. No warning that this is completely heretical what's going on in Germany and could very really cause a schism and create a, a national German, you know, fake church, basically, like the equivalent of the uh, Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association, more or less, in a, in a little different way, but same same concept. So no warning at all, just, you know, hey, this is going on in Germany, and basically this is what's going to be going on in the universal church for the next two years. So buckle buckle your seatbelts. Yeah, basically it, it, it makes people uh, hopefully wake up and be very concerned about what's coming. I know Cardinal Burke, uh, Bishop Schneider, uh, have both spoken about this, uh, ver- and, and even Cardinal Sarah, um, in, in being very concerned about this. M- most of the you know, their commentary on it has been about how it is, a, you know, it's being bandied about as a term to be used to be able to promote heresy in the, within the church, uh, something that can't really happen. If I could also mention something that's unique about this particular synod, and you've, you've been covering this, uh, these synods much longer than I have. And just by the way, I, I greatly appreciate LifeSite News. I think you all do excellent work and we're in your debt uh, of, in the Catholic world. So thank you for all that you do. What's unique about this so-called synod on synodality is that in the unlike previous synods, and I've gone back and you know looked at the different topics, each of them were devoted either to a specific doctrinal or pastoral subject. So to give one a couple examples, in 1974, the topic was evangelization in the modern world. 1977, catechesis in our times, 1980, the Christian family. So it had a very, you know, specific focus to it. Uh, either a doctrinal or pastoral subject, or it was devoted to a particular region in the world. The focus of this current synod is much broader, and it bears upon the very nature of the church herself, which is very concerning. Uh, It's really to the point of seeking to fundamentally and permanently change the church, or at least to change the traditional understanding of her divine constitution, and a perfect example of, of that being one of the goals of this process um, is none other than, than Pope Francis himself in his opening address. So just to give people a timeline to help them understand how long this has been going on, where we're at in the process, uh, it was first announced, this synodal process was announced in April, I believe, and then in May it was announced. Originally, it was supposed to just be a month-long, you know, quote-unquote, normal month-long synod in Rome in October of 2022. And then in late May of this year, Pope Francis announced that it was going to be this longer two-year thing with different phases. We're currently in the diocesan phase right now. So it officially opened in Rome uh, the weekend of October 9th and 10th uh, with Pope Francis, and then in dioceses around the world the following Sunday, October 17th, as we heard from Cardinal Dolan. 
And this is what Pope Francis said uh, in his opening speech. He, he went so far as to quote a rather infamous character named Father Yves Congar, who was a, prof- a progressive Dominican, what's known as Peritus in, in uh, Latin, or a theological expert at Vatican II. He was also the co-founder, uh, one of the co-founders of the heterodox journal Con- Concilium or Concilium, which is different from Communio, which was supposedly the more conservative one. And Pope Francis quoted him as in his opening address saying, quote, there is no need to create another church, but to create a different church. And I so appreciated uh, your journalist, Michael Haynes, wrote an article, you know, after the opening of the synod, quoting that text, a different church, I believe was the headline. And uh, he asked me for some some comments, and I offered them. So basically, that you know, this was like a month after the preparatory document and the handbook had been released, and I'd had a chance to review those documents. So this is what I, I said to Mr. Haynes in, in response to his request for comment. Uh, Between the Pope's own comments on the subject and the official documents issued by the Vatican, the Synod on Synodality is clearly intended to be an extension of the Second Vatican Council, and I said, you could even dub it Vatican III, because that's essentially what uh, Father Congar and his uh, comrades at Concilium wanted. Those comrades included men like Hans Kuhn, um, notorious for heresy and and other such figures, uh, Edward Schilbeeks, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but all very notorious bad, bad actors. So I went on to, to explain, you know, the preparatory document, for example, directly connects the synodal journey now beginning with the church's renewal proposed by the Second Vatican Council. Um, and further confirmation, I mentioned uh, the synod's connection to the council was Pope Francis about the whole, you know, we had no need to create, we don't need to create a new church, but a different church. Well, what, what is substantially is the difference? If you're going to create a different church, then you are creating something new. So one of the commentaries that you get from uh, Cardinal Tobin, again, one of the, um, you know, people Pope Francis has moved into great prominence in the church, a very troubling background, of course, but that's for another another time. He's been very open about what he thinks that the uh, Synod on Synodality is about. He he calls it sort of the Francis's long plan for changing the church. Uh, and it is about changing the church. It is about um, changing the church and, and the church being uh, what it's supposed to be, uh, the Bride of Christ. You're talking about trying to change uh, or make a different Bride of Christ. Um, and I think that's extremely troubling, particularly coming from these characters. And, and Tobin was very upfront about it. In fact, he said the you know previous synod or, or synods or councils in the church were about uh, defining dogma and excluding people. He said, this is about uh, m- a much different path of listening and, and, and inclusion and so on. This is very, very dangerous because the, the, the synods, yes, the, the councils in the church, they used to all be about clarity. They used to, uh, yes, let's get away from the heresies. Let's define it, make it clear for the people. We had a massive departure from that with the Second Vatican Council. It was one of the first council, actually, that kicked out all of the preparatory documents or schema, as they used to be called, um, you know, beautiful writings, summing up the teaching of the church on all sorts of varied subjects, all kicked out before the uh, council began. 
Um, but it really was the first council of ambiguity. And so continuing down this road of ambiguity when we're awash in it right now is very concerning indeed. We still have uh, from John Paul II and Benedict some attempt to make from the council documents still some clarities, insist upon at least the moral clarity in the church. Um, and yet that's all now in question. We've seen Pope Francis question the teaching on contraception, on cohabitation, on homosexuality with, with his invite for uh, even civil recognition of, of civil same-sex unions, believe it or not. Um, we've seen all of these things from the Pope himself, um, and so the church is already in a in a state of disarray, not knowing what's what. Many good, faithful Catholics believing erroneously that ch church has changed or could possibly change on these questions of morality, which is impossible. What do you see as coming from this synod on synodality, even in the interim, even in this first stage of, of feeding it? The thrust behind this council is supposedly a consultation of the people of God, you know, consult and using, it's very, in many ways, it's similar to Vatican II, that it uses legitimate concepts, ideas in some ways, but it kind of twists the meaning. Yeah, I can give a couple of examples here. Uh, one thing I did want to mention before we moved on, so this whole, this whole notion, it's, it's funny kind of that they, they bring up in the, um, Paragraph 14 of the pa the uh, preparatory document, which is separate from the the preparatory document, is kind of like the the theory, the theoretical, and then the handbook is more of the practical how to implement this thing. So in the preparatory document, it says, "quote The consultation of the people of God does not imply the assumption within the Church of the dynamics of democracy based on the principle of majority." because there is at the basis of participation in every synodal process, a shared passion for the common mission of evangelization and not the representation of conflicting interests. And when I read that, I immediately thought, you know, this is demonstrably false. If you just look at the, uh, the, all of the internal strife during the 2014, 2015 synods on the family, which I know LifeSite covered very thoroughly, as well as the 2019 Pan-Amazon Synod. I mean, those gatherings were defined by strife rooted precisely in what this preparatory document calls the representation of conflicting interests <laughs> of opposing agendas. And yet, at the same time, as I read earlier, the, the handbook for this same Synod on Synodality claims the heart of the synodal experience is listening to God through listening to one another, not through listening to scripture. I mean, it says inspired by the word of God, but it emph the emphasis is clearly on listening to the people. It's almost like we, the people of the Catholic Church, like, you know, the preamble of the United States Constitution. It's a bottom-up, uh, very modernist approach because revelation did not well up from below. It was given to us. It was handed down from above. So it's, it's inverting the truth there. Psychologically, it does some grave harm to the faithful because it actually disturbs our whole notion of God. In a way, if, if the church is what she is, the bride of Christ, 
there should be a stability there. The truths of Christ are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, we have that surety. We have that, in fact, you could say we have that relationship with this person of Christ. And so if we can see this person of Christ changing, oh, just becoming a different church, becoming a different bride of Christ, this is incredibly disturbing for people because it shakes their notion of the constancy of their Savior, their spouse, their God, their church. It's incredible what what this does. And I guess, I don't know how much thought they've given to that, but there is that. I wanted to also mention another aspect to this, which is interesting, because here we are doing a consultation with the faithful. In some ways, that's a great thing. It's great to be able to express your concerns about what's going on in the church. I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of Catholics, perhaps even young Catholics, want to say certain things about, uh, you know, to the older Catholics, like, hey, we love the Latin Mass. What are you doing with it? Why are you putting it away? Look at all of us and our families going here. Aren't you seeing this? Are we the only ones seeing this? Something happens to be wrong. Um, And maybe getting that message out to the Vatican so that they can pick it up uh, might be a very good thing indeed. But who are they talking to? And that's a really good question, because here we are having a consultation with Catholics, supposedly. And yet, who are they talking to? So, a lot of people know and understand by now that there are a whole bunch of Catholics in the world that aren't really Catholics. They're not living the faith at all. They are on the books as Catholics. They might be registered as Catholics, but very much like uh, some of the Republicans in the Republican Party, they're Republicans in name only. They're Catholics in name only. They're there for maybe the cultural reason or like, and hopefully not many, like Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, who are there for uh, political expediency. Whether they think they are or not, they're not part of Catholic Church by any means. They're totally pro-abortion, they're totally pro-homosexual, against the teachings of Jesus on these moral issues. So they've put themselves outside the church, period. There's no, there's no way around that. Uh, it might be nice that they, they, you know, believe that there is a Jesus, a very different Jesus than the actual Jesus, of course. <laughs> but it's very, very disturbing. But yet, this is the majority of people, I, I hate to say it, but it is. I mean, I think that's plainly obvious. The majority of people who refer to themselves as Catholics are that. They believe something completely different than what the teaching of the church is. But yet, who is this consultation with? I can give some interesting quotes uh, to answer that question from the handbook for the synod. So the section two of the official handbook is called Principles of a Synodal Process. And two point, section 2.1, who can participate? This is what the document says, quote, Dioceses are called to keep in mind that the main subjects of this synodal experience are all the baptized. Seems pretty straightforward. Special care should be taken to involve those persons who may risk being excluded. Then it gives a list. Uh, Women, the handicapped, refugees, migrants, the elderly, people who live in poverty. And this is the, the kicker. Catholics who rarely or never practice their faith. How are, I mean, with all due respect, how are those folks going to help the church get to a better place than than the human element of the church is in right now? You, you can't. If you're cut off from the vine, uh, cut off from the life of grace, which is what a person is if they rarely or never practice their faith, they're a dead member beyond the body of Christ. That's That's the sad reality, that they are not in a position spiritually 
to help anything. They need to get their own house in order. You're being the furthest thing from mean and nasty there, but I need you to unpack that a little bit more because many people might think, oh my gosh, you're so exclusionary. Pope Francis was right in the first place. You guys are all about excluding, excluding, excluding. Actually, you're coming from a position of love. Explain that for us. It's not that we're saying, oh, you're such a horrible person, a Catholic who rarely or never practices their faith. Sure, we can consult them and find out why they're not practicing their faith and what the problem is, but ultimately... You know the the charitable and the merciful thing to do. That one of the one of the uh, spiritual works of mercy is to uh, instruct the ignorant. It's also to admonish the sinner. That's an act of mercy to call them back to repentance, call them home to the life of grace, to the life of the sacraments. Uh, so we're certainly not about excluding anyone. We don't want anyone to be excluded. God Himself does not want anyone to be excluded. He says in um, First Timothy chapter two, that he, he wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So there's a connection there between being saved and knowing and embracing the truth. Folks cannot be saved. They cannot benefit from the fruits of the redemption without knowing and embracing that revealed truth. So it is very much an act of mercy and inclusion to call people to conversion. And I'd like to, you know, bring this to a close in, in, a, in a few minutes here, but I wanted to ask you one more question specifically. What is, in, in your mind, something that Catholics who care about the Church, who, who believe the truths of the Church, need to be doing at this time about Synod? The um, consultative process is open to literally everyone. I mean, the handbook says a, two paragraphs down, um, while all the baptized are specifically called to take part in the synodal process, no one no matter their religious affiliation should be excluded. So literally this is wide open to everybody. You know, I guess at the, at your local parish level, you can ask your pastor, your parish priest, um, what's going on. You know, can I, I want to put in my, um, my two cents worth, so to speak. And every di- as I said, every diocese around the world is supposed to be participating in this process. Every diocese is supposed to have like a, I forget the formal title, but a diocesan point person, every bishop of every diocese is supposed to be personally involved in listening to the people of God. So I guess the best advice I can give is make your voices heard in favor of, of the faith, the true faith, the, the true church, and and the tradition, you know. Father Mark Goring, who uh, is a, a neat priest from Companions of the Cross uh, up in Canada, he uh, he called, he had a very short message uh, for the faithful to take part in the synodal process type of thing. Uh, let's have a look at that. Let your voice be heard. My point is, no silly stuff. We see silly stuff happening in Germany. And I want you to make your voice heard. I'm going to make my voice heard. No silly stuff. Give me the true unwatered-down gospel. This is what brings salvation, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The Lord Jesus said, If you remain in my word, you will truly be my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So that was Father Mark Goring. Um... Let me ask you also, uh, Matt, uh, you, you've studied this. Um, what are your sort of final thoughts on uh, 
where we are right now with this process and within the church generally. Recently, uh, as you know, Catholic Family News and LifeSite News had the privilege of, of publishing a, a new Advent meditation from His Excellency Archbishop Vigano. And I think he sums up pretty much where we are pretty well in that uh, meditation. He says, In the dramatic crisis that now for 60 years afflicts the Church of Christ, and which today is showing itself in all its gravity, a posilus grex, that is a little flock, asks their Lord to save humanity that has gone astray, when corruption and apostasy have penetrated even the sacred enclosure and unto the highest throne. So obviously he's talking about the church, what our friend Dr. Taylor Marshall would call the infiltration of the church, and the highest throne is obviously a reference to the chair of Peter. And he goes on to observe, think of how many believers raised in absolute ignorance of the fundamentals of the faith, despite having attended catechism, are steeped in heretical, philosophical, and theological doctrines, convinced that all religions are equal, ignorant that man, or excuse me, of people who believe that man is not wounded by original sin, but naturally good. How many Catholics believe that lie? I think a lot. That the state must ignore the true religion and tolerate error. And he just goes on and on with this litany of, of terrible errors that many Catholics sadly today believe. And it's basically, it's, uh, he ends this paragraph by saying, not even the most delirious ravings of the worst Freemason could have hoped to see the fulfillment of Voltaire's cry, uh, which in the English translation is crush the loathsome thing, referring to the church. So basically, it's the dream of Freemasonry that he mentioned in his very first uh, intervention regarding Vatican II. Uh, which both of our uh, publications published back in June of 2000, he said, quote, that from Vatican II onwards, a parallel church was built, superimposed over and diametrically opposed to the true church of Christ. This parallel church, he said, progressively obscured the divine institution founded by our Lord in order to replace it with a spurious entity corresponding to the desired universal religion that was first theorized by masonry, end quote. I think that really summarizes where we're at in the church today. Well, Matt Gaspers, thank you for being with us uh, on this episode of the John Henry Reston Show. I, uh, I would encourage people to go check out Catholic Family News. Uh, Matt does a great job there with uh, his team uh, to bring truth, uh, especially to Catholics who are uh, searching for it in this wild west of a time that, uh, that we're dealing with. God bless you, Matt. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to LifeSiteNews.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe, and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. 
Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parlor, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.